Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Wildwood. If uh, you're new here for any other reason we haven't met, my name is Russell, and I'm the Director of Worship and Arts. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. For watching online, thank you for joining us. Well, this morning we are wrapping up what has been a 10-week series on the Apostles' Creed. Can you believe it's been 10 weeks? Some of you are like, yes, yes, I can very much believe it's been 10 weeks. I'm ready to move on. Thank you very much. I get it. I hear you. Hope you got room for one more in you. This morning, we're going to be talking um, about the last line in the Apostles' Creed. And let me say this, um, if, again, if this is your first Sunday with us or your first Sunday here in the series or you're kind of new to the whole idea of the Apostles' Creed, um, I don't really have a whole lot of time to go into the detail of all of it. But essentially, the Apostles' Creed serves as a centuries-old um, basic list of Christian beliefs. In other words, basically what it means to be a Christian. So it's not an exhaustive statement of faith, but just a basic list of beliefs. So if you want to know more about the Apostles' Creed, I'd really encourage you, wherever your podcasts are offered or whatever, or online, just to go back and listen to the last couple of weeks, because I think it's going to be really helpful for you. Like I said, this morning we're going to be looking at the last line in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I don't know about you, but I feel like this line in the Apostles' Creed, maybe more than some of the others, kind of doesn't get a whole lot of airtime, you know? Maybe it's not quite as cool as talking about the crucifixion or the resurrection or the Holy Spirit or something like that. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I remember I, I, I was brought up in a part of the Christian tradition that, I don't know, maybe didn't put a whole lot of stock in the Apostles' Creed, or if they did, nobody told me. Um, because I remember where I was. I was uh, in my 20s, and a friend of mine had asked me to come and sing a solo at her church. So I remember where I was the first time I said the Apostles' Creed that day. I was on the stage, and the pastor comes up, and he has the whole congregation stand, and he leads uh, the congregation in the Apostles' Creed. And I thought, well, I'm a guest, so I don't want to be rude, so I don't know what this is, but I'll stand and participate, and we're going through, and sure enough, it's all great. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Oh, well, me too. This is great. The resurrection, the crucifixion, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church. This is great. I love all that. I've never heard this before. This is great. And then we come to that last line. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And I remember saying that. And I, it just kind of like, you know, when you eat something that you don't know how it's going to taste, and then you eat it, and you kind of go, huh, I wasn't expecting that. You know, it's not like bad necessarily. It's just kind of funky, leaves a weird taste in your mouth. Well, that last line, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, kind of left that odd taste in my mouth. And as I thought about it, I started thinking, well, yeah, it's not the life everlasting part. I get that, duh, heaven. Everybody knows that. The resurrection of the body. I don't know, for some reason, that for a long time, that just didn't quite sit right with me. And as I've kind of been reflecting and processing over the years since then, asking myself, why is it that that line just sat so odd with me? I asked myself a lot, and what it came down to is this. I didn't realize it. I never would have said it this way. No one sat me down and told me this when I was a kid or whatever. But somehow I had caught the idea that my body was something of low value. In other words, the cultural waters that I was sort of swimming in all led me to believe that my body was somehow intrinsically unimportant or worse, bad. I started thinking, well, how did I end up believing this? Again, I never would have said it that way. But that's essentially what I deep down believed. And I asked myself, how did I start thinking this way about my body? And it's hard to know exactly. It's hard to pinpoint it. 
But one likely suspect is an idea that has kind of trickled down throughout the centuries. It's at least as old as the Christian tradition is. We don't know exactly its origins, but it's an ancient worldview called Gnosticism. Now hang with me, this is going to get weird, okay? Just letting you know in advance. Gnosticism is an ancient belief system that, again, has ancient origins we don't know exactly, and had a lot of strange beliefs, but one of the core tenets of Gnosticism was this idea that the material world was bad and that the immaterial world was good. And they took that a step further. They actually believed that there was not one creator God, there were effectively two creator gods. There was one creator God who was kind of a lesser, kind of eh, second best kind of God who created all the material, the physical stuff, right? The rocks, the trees, the squirrels, human bodies, that kind of thing. But that God was always just kind of there. Then you had the higher God who created the real significant stuff, the spiritual, the immaterial, the stuff you can't see. And that's the true God. And see, in Gnosticism, ultimately the idea was that one day you just got to kind of put up with your body while you're here on earth, but that one day when you die, your essence, the real you, your true self, you may have heard it said that way recently, would escape from your body and be reunited to the real, the good, the top tier God. Now, we thoroughly modern people would never be caught dead with such an odd array of beliefs. And yet, I would submit to you that the conclusions of Gnosticism, that your body is something of lesser value, has definitely stuck around throughout history. In fact, one writer, Nancy Piercy, in her absolute just dynamite book called Love Thy Body, says this about Gnosticism. She's quoting another historian. She says, the Gnostic view of the body was that it was an unruly piece of matter that the soul had to struggle to control and manage. A popular pun was that the body is a tomb. Let that sink in for a second. The body is a tomb. In other words, the Gnostic belief was that your body is essentially where the real you goes to die. Or the Gnostic belief in the body being a tomb was that your body just kind of had to hang out and grin and bear it. Sorry, you'll get out eventually in your body until you died. Then you would truly be free. And like I said, I know that sounds crazy, but I would totally argue and submit to you that the conclusions of Gnosticism are alive and well today. And I'm not just going to say that. Let me back that up. I'm going to show some quotes from some thinkers throughout history. The first one comes from a little philosopher named Plato. Perhaps you've heard of him. Plato said this, The body is a source of endless trouble to us and impedes us in the search after true being. A few centuries later, a thinker named Rene Descartes, one of the leading thinkers in the Enlightenment movement, who's responsible for a lot of what we have today, Rene Descartes said this, I know that I exist and that nothing else belongs to my nature or essence except that I am a thinking thing. So it is certain that I am really distinct from my body and can exist without that. Think about that for a second. Rene Descartes said he is essentially so bought in hook, line, and sinker to this Gnosticism idea that he actually believes that his body is something separate than him. Another quote from a few centuries later, uh, a former director at MIT, in other words, a fairly smart cookie, 
said this, every person I meet is also a machine, a big bag full of skin, uh, a big bag of skin full of biomolecules. Every person is a machine, a big bag of skin full of biomolecules. And if that troubles you, don't worry, because in the next paragraph in that book, he has to remind himself when he talks to his kids that he is looking at other bags of skin full of biomolecules. One cultural commentator sums up the kind of modern outlook on the body this way. She says it so well. She says this, your body is not you. It is just a shell or a juicy robot. The real you, the disembodied ghost, controls. By the way, if anybody's starting a band and looking for a new band name, Juicy Robots is available. I checked. It's all yours. What I hope you saw in those quotes is that absolutely, Rene Descartes would never be caught dead with some of the obscure, crazy beliefs of Gnosticism. And yet, the conclusions of Gnosticism have absolutely trickled their way into the kind of thought and power brokers throughout history. And that leads us to this question. Does our body matter or not? Here's why this matters. If the Gnostic perspective is true and your body doesn't matter, then you can do whatever you want with it. Nobody can tell you otherwise. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want, with whoever you want, use it up, give it away, do whatever you want, because at the end of the day, you are just, as Robin Williams said, food for worms. But if the Gnostics were wrong, then your body is not random or meaningless. It has a design. And if it has a design, then it has a purpose. And if it has a purpose, therefore it has an end goal. It is my conviction this morning that in order to recapture the ultimate hope of the Christian faith, we need to uncover Scripture's view of the body. So here's how we're going to do that this morning. Two ways. First off, we're going to look at a biblical theology of the body. And don't worry, that's not going to be super in-depth or comprehensive. It's going to be brief and kind of three different episodes. And then after that, we're going to talk about some practical implications of that. Sound good? We ready? All right. Well, I've got the mic. So here we go. First things first, a biblical theology of the body. And and let me start off by saying this. I understand um, this first part may feel a little bit like a biblical theology lecture. And for the 99% of you who aren't Mike Shockey, um, I get it. That may not be your thing, so if that's not your cup of tea, listen, don't worry, because somebody different is preaching next week, okay? Here we go. Biblical theology of the body. We're going to do a lot of Bible this morning, so get ready to flip. We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about our bodies. And like I said, we're going to do this in three kind of episodes. One, the, Bible, or the body in creation. Two, the body in resurrection. Three, the body in new creation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. And look, I get it. When someone gets up on the stage and they say, turn to Genesis 1, we sit up a little bit straighter. The hair on the back of our neck kind of stands up. We go, "Mm, preacher, where are you going with this? Are we talking literal seven-day creation? Are we talking theistic evolution? Are we talking gap theory? Are we talking day age? Or something totally different we've never heard of before? And and, and listen, here's what I want to say about that. Um, I'm not saying that's not important. We're not saying that's not important. In fact, we believe that is so important. Um, This summer, we had a summer seminar series that we did. And actually, one of the weeks we dedicated into what do we as a church believe about that question? What do we as a denomination believe about that question? So if you're curious about that, you can find that online. Um, but, but, but what I'm going to say is not that that's not important. It is. 
But it's going to be helpful for us this morning to just take that whole debate and just kind of set it aside for where we're going this morning. So if you do that, that'd be helpful. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jump down, if you would, with me in the same chapter, verse 31. Chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's talk about a couple of things in this passage. First thing to note is that we as Christians believe that God created what's called ex nihilo. Okay, and that's just a fancy way of saying that God created out of nothing. Okay, so in other words, when God went to do his creative work, he didn't have any point of reference giving him direction, all right? It's not like when you're putting a puzzle together and you keep looking back at the Bible, okay, this one goes here, that one goes here. It's not like that at all. It's not like God had someone whispering over his shoulder, okay, give this wings, great, cool, give it a tail, make it green. It wasn't like that at all. God had no point of reference for his act of creation. In other words, in creation, God could do whatever he wants. He had a blank canvas, so to speak. And that's important to say, because God could have done whatever he wanted. And the way that he chose, it's crystal clear in the text, the way that he chose to create his divine imagers in the world, his viceroys on planet earth, his ambassadors, his stand-ins to rule and reign under his dominion, the way that he chose to do that was to create human beings, male and female, in their physical bodies. A lot of times we read that and we just assume it, we fly by it. Don't fly by it this morning. Don't skip over that. Humankind was created in their physical material bodies. That wasn't plan B or C. That was what God wanted. And in fact, not only that, as verse 31 showed us, it delighted him to do that. You see, because throughout the Um, throughout the creation narrative, at different points, there's almost this kind of like musical refrain that God does. And he saw what he created, and he said it was good. Exactly. You know your Bibles. Over and over and over again, in God's creation story, God looks at what he makes, and he says it is good. And now I know in English, the word good is kind of like a slippery, kind of squirmy word, right? It kind of means a whole lot of things. And so in some sense, it almost means nothing, right? Let me tell you what I mean. When you go online and you want to buy something that's used, so something that's not new, but something that's used, usually has a couple of different categories. You could buy it like new, you could buy it very good, you could buy it good, acceptable, or poor, or whatever, you know what I'm talking about? Well, when you buy something that is in good condition, you kind of hold your nose and go, when I say good, it actually probably means not good, but it's all that's there, here we go. So in that sentence there, the word good actually kind of means not very good. Then in another sense, if you go somewhere amazing for dinner and you have something that just like blows your mind, it's just so good, and someone asks you how it was, and you go, oh, it was so good, it was amazing. 
Well, in that sentence, you're using the same word to mean something that was incredible. Or for you parents of middle schoolers, you get this one. When your kid comes home and you say, hey, how was your day? And they say, it was good. Like nobody knows what that means. Like our best experts are like, we got nothing. It's not in the commentaries. I can't help you. I don't know what to tell you. In that like 30 seconds, I use the, good, the word good three times in three totally different ways. In the Hebrew, it's a little bit more specific. So when God looks at his act of creation, he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. The Hebrew word that's used there is a word called tov. Everybody say tov. Tov. The thing about tov is it means good, but more specifically, tov could be used to say that something is the way it's supposed to be, like at a core level, right? Or that something is functioning properly. Something is tov. So when God looks at trees, he looks at rivers, he looks at mountains, he looks at clouds in the sky, tov, good, functioning properly, the way it's supposed to be at its core. And then... On the last day of creation, he looks at humanity, male and female, in their physical bodies. And he doesn't just say tov. In the Hebrew, he says tov meod. And meod is a modifier of tov. That means very or exceedingly. So all throughout his creation, God says tov, good, tov, functioning properly, tov, the way it's supposed to be, until he comes to humanity the apex, the crown of his creation. And he says, that is very good. Or that is exceedingly the way it's supposed to be. Or that is very proper. God created humankind in physical flesh and blood bodies because it is what he wanted to do. Which affirms in creation that when God created the body, your body is good. Now, if you know the rest of this story, you know know what happens a page flip away, and that is something that theologians call the fall. And what happened in the fall was that sin and death entered the world and twisted and mangled not only our bodies, but also what we do with and in our bodies and our desires for our bodies. And that is serious, but note this, God never revoked his stamp of approval on our bodies. Though they were twisted and mangled by sin and death, he never revoked his stamp of approval on them. Keep that in mind. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning, fun little fact, this has over the years become probably my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, just one verse here. It's going to be on the screens as well. It says this, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's a couple of things that we'll pull from this passage, but the significance of Jesus' resurrection is that he was resurrected in his body. In other words, when they're talking about, the gospel writers, when they talk about an empty tomb, they mean this literally. He was raised in his body. He wasn't resurrected as a ghostly soul or a spirit or a brain on a stick or whatever. And over the last 2,000 years, there's been debate about this back and forth of people who just say for the last 2,000 years, there's just no way he was raised in his body. And the church has held resolutely all these centuries that it was a physical bodily resurrection. And it was put recently emphatically um, 
by New Testament scholar N.T. Wright in his tome on the resurrection. He said this, virtually all the early Christians for whom we have solid evidence affirmed that Jesus of Nazareth had been bodily raised from the dead. When they said he was raised on the third day, they meant this literally. God raised Christ in his body, which is again the reaffirmation of the goodness of the physical body. But that's not all that's packed into this verse. Look at what Paul says after that. He talks about Christ and his resurrection and then says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you're anything like me and not, you know, a farmer, because I'm not, then this metaphor may be a little bit lost on you. It certainly was lost on me. So I did a little bit of homework and prep for this. And here's what I found. Paul here, when he talks about the first fruits, is using an agrarian metaphor, okay? So what he's talking about is when a farmer goes out in the harvest season to get their crops or their farmer things, I don't know, and they come back, whatever they bring back, that first collection from the harvest, that is the first fruits. And the point of the first fruits is not to say we went out into the field and brought everything back. The point of the first fruits is to bring something back and say, there is more to come after this. When uh, we moved down here in the summer of 2019, we realized pretty quick that there were two fruit trees in our backyard. And one was a tangelo tree, another one was a red lime tree. Yes, it's a thing. And uh, one of my favorite things to do every year around this time of year, probably within the next couple of weeks, is to go back into the backyard and to pick the red limes and to pick the tangelos and to cut them open and juice them. It's one of my favorite things to do. And it's always so much fun to go back there and get the first bag full to bring them in. Again, not to say I got everything back there. Because, y'all, there is a lot of tangelos growing this year. If you want any, let me know. We got a ton. But it's to go and get the first fruits, to bring it in, to say there is more to come. Paul is using that metaphor to say Jesus in his resurrection is a sign of things to come for us, all who follow Jesus in our resurrection on the last day. In other words, what happened to Jesus will happen to us. What is true of Jesus will be true on us. And here's why that matters. See, when I was growing up, I essentially believed that if I became a Christian, one day I would get old and then I would die. And my soul would leave my body behind and go to heaven and exist forever. There is a bluish ghostly thing that like jazz music. If you saw the movie, you get that one. The truth though is, that sounds a whole lot more like Gnosticism than the picture that the New Testament actually paints. Nancy Piercy, again for the wind, says this, when the Bible speaks of redemption, it does not only mean going to heaven when we die. It means the redemption of all creation. The gospel message is, is that the entire physical world will be transformed. Humans will not be saved out of the material creation, but will be saved together with the material creation. Keep that in mind. One more time to flip. Last one, I promise. Flip over to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at the first four verses here. Revelation chapter 21. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, excuse me, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Let's look at a couple of things that this text says. First off, there's the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Second, the new Jerusalem, the city of God coming down down from heaven. And third, God's dwelling to be among his people. This is not a vision of us getting up on out of here and God crumpling up the earth like a ball and throwing it away over his shoulder to do something completely different. In the beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden down here. And yes, the union of heaven and earth was ruined by sin. But the conclusion of the Bible is God making right what went wrong and reuniting heaven and earth as it was always meant to be. Not just recreating Eden in a garden, but surpassing Eden with the garden city, the new Jerusalem. That is the vision of the New Testament. You may hear all that and you may say, well, that sounds great. What does that have to do with our bodies? Answer, everything. Our bodies are telling the very story of the gospel and pointing to the end, or to use philosophical speech, the telos of the gospel, the goal of the gospel. That though our bodies are broken and twisted and full of, ooh, that didn't hurt yesterday, but it does today, the kingdom is coming. And the day will come when our bodies are restored to what they were created to be clothed with incorruptible, undying glory. End of lecture. Thank you for your patience. You've been good sports. Let's look at some practical implications of all this. And the first is to say, as we said earlier, that your body is good. Your body is good. And listen, I know for many of us, yes, us in the room, that may be the most unbelievable thing you hear me say all morning. And I get it. Trust me, I do. But if the witness of Scripture is true, and I would humbly submit to you that it is, that means that the Gnostics are wrong, that your body is not random or meaningless, that it has a good design. And if it has a good design, then it has a purpose. And if it has a purpose, it has an end goal. And look, I, I get it. When we start talking about this, all of the things that we, yes, we, hate about our bodies come flooding to our minds. And, and not only the things that we hate about our bodies, but the things that we think you also probably hate about our bodies, you're just too polite to tell us about it. So, so I understand this is weighty. But friends, it's important to underscore this again, that the testament of Scripture is that God has never, ever revoked his stamp of approval on our bodies. And our relationship with our bodies may be complicated at best, but make no mistake, God loves your body. It is twisted by sin, but it is still very good. And I know for some of us in the room, that may require a major recalibration of the way that we think about our bodies. 
That may mean for many of us every morning we need to wake up and we need to preach God's love for our bodies to ourselves until it gets into us. Reminding us that God loved our body in creation, that he still loves our bodies, and that one day God will resurrect your body and clothe it in righteous immortality. And that's the second implication this morning. First, that your body is good. Second, that the fullness of joy is coming. The Apostles' Creed ends with an affirmation um, that the day is coming when God is going to restore all things. And a natural question to ask after seeing that is to say, well, what exactly is that going to be like? And the honest answer to that is, we really don't know. We don't know all the details. We're given some hints throughout the scriptures. Like in the Gospels in the New Testament, after Jesus' resurrection, we see what his body is able to do, that he is in fact in a body, but that he does some things we've never seen before. There's continuity, there's discontinuity. But at the end of the day, ultimately, we don't know what it's going to be like. We don't know what all's going to be there. But you know what won't be there. Insecurity won't be there. Body hatred won't be there. Self-harm won't be there. Tears won't be there. Death, grief, pain won't be there. And all the things we hate about our bodies will be resurrected into Christ's glorious likeness. And we won't just be resigned to play harps on clouds either, friends. On God's good new earth, we'll run, we'll sing, we'll dance, we'll feast, we'll play. We'll get dirt under our fingernails and grass stains on our kneecaps and our hair will get all sweaty like it did when we were kids. We'll enjoy the new heavens and the new earth in our new bodies and all will be well. No, we don't know all the details. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But to end, I would imagine it would at least be something like the way C.S. Lewis says it at the end of the Narnia series. And rather than trying to explain that to you, I thought I would just read it. It's never a bad idea to let C.S. Lewis do your talking for you anyways. It says this, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.